Well, there's an old saying that there are two topics that you should never discuss in polite company. Now, I don't know exactly what polite company is, but there are two topics, if you ever find yourself in polite company, that you should never discuss, and they are religion and politics. Well, guess what? For the next six weeks, we're discussing both. And this is relatively polite company, right? So for some of you, you're welcoming this, right? You're ready to have this conversation. And others of you may be squirming a little bit. And squirming is okay, I get it. There's good reason to squirm, because you're tired of the advertising, you're tired of the campaign rhetoric, you're tired of the incessant media coverage, am I right? You're tired of the sound bites. You're tired, you're dreading the upcoming debates. They're on the calendar, they're coming soon. You simply can't wait until this election season is behind. Is anybody feeling that way? And maybe you're not sure that you can take it because we still have two months to go. And maybe you're even thinking, can't church be one? There's a reason why we're going to spend the next six weeks reflecting on politics. Because as people of faith, we always want to be striving for an integrated life. Sometimes I think it's easy to think of faith as something that we do on Sundays. And then the rest of our lives, you know, our family, our job, our friendships, our political convictions, those are the things for the other six days of the week. Sunday, that's my day for faith. Everything else comes Monday through Saturday. But that's not an integrated life, is it? That's a very compartmentalized, segmented kind of life. And we want to be striving always for an integrated life, which is to say that God calls us to live our faith 24-7 and to live out our faith in our family and in our jobs and in our friendships and even through our political convictions and everything else. So practice faithfully, politics is actually an expression, can be an expression of our spirituality. It should be. It should be integrated in the way we see the world. So in your seat, you have a little slip of paper that may have caught your attention. Did this catch anybody's attention when you sat down and you're like, what? I was voting today? <laughs> so the slip of paper says, during this election season, I vote for and pray for. See, voting and praying can be kind of the same practice. Now, we're not asking you to indicate who you're voting for. That's between you and the ballot booth and God. But we want to invite you during this six-week series to think about and pray about what you are voting for. Now, maybe that is a value, like I'm voting for love, or I'm voting for peace, or I'm voting for justice. Or maybe it is a desired outcome, like I'm voting for an end to gun violence. Or I'm voting for a more uh, tolerant and accepting world. That would be a desired outcome that you're voting for and praying for. Or maybe even it's a motivation for your voting, like I'm voting for my grandchildren. You know, the motivation for your voting. However you want to use that, we invite you just to spend some time with it today and there, there are pens and cups along the edges of the rows here to grab a pen, pass them down so everybody has one. 
and spend some time thinking about what you are voting for. You still have some time to think about who you're voting for. But what are you voting for? And then before you go today, maybe as you receive communion or during a song, we want to invite you, if you feel led to, to post them up on these mirrors so that we can kind of read that, read what others have written and be inspired by that. Our voting can be actually be a reflection of our values, our desired outcomes, and our motivations if we practice it to the lens of our spirituality. So that's about the slip of paper in your seat. So this next, um, this six-week series is called God's Politics, Healing the Heart of Democracy. I am grateful for two authors whose books have been inspiring uh, for this series and that Sarah and I, I are using to kind of shape the series, and I'm just going to share the books for, with you. The first, uh, actually, are two books by the same author, Jim Wallace, who some of you know as the president of a Christian social justice organization based in Washington, D.C. called Sojourners, and also the editor of a magazine by that same name, Sojourners. Anybody read Sojourners magazine? Yeah, it's a great magazine. He's also the author of 10 books, including this one, which is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, it's not new. Uh, it was written in 2005. Uh, God's Politics, and I love the subtitle, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. So I commend that book to you. And then a more recent book, also by Jim Wallace, called On God's Side. This one is a little more recent, written in 2013. And I'm going to say more about this title in just a minute. And then finally, this book, which is new to me, by Parker Palmer, who is also a prolific author. He comes from the Quaker tradition, and he's written on widely on lots of different topics. But this book is called Healing the Heart of Democracy. That's the subtitle of this worship series. Subtitle, The Courage to Create a Politics Worthy of the Human Spirit. And I'm reading this book now and finding it to be incredibly insightful and, and helpful, so I, I commend that book to you as well. So as we begin, just a quick reminder, and that is that God is not a Republican. God is also not a Democrat. God is not partisan. So when we talk about God's politics, we're not talking about partisan politics, we're always talking about values. We're not talking about political parties, we're talking about values. And God's values are reflected throughout Scripture, and so we don't have to guess about that. Here's what Jim Wallace says about that topic. He says, God's politics is therefore never partisan nor ideological, but it challenges everything about our politics. God's politics reminds us of the people our, our politics always neglects poor, the vulnerable, the left behind. God's politics challenges narrow national, ethnic, economic, or cultural self-interest, reminding us of a much wider world and the creative human diversity of all those made in the image of the Creator. God's politics reminds us of the creation itself, a rich environment in which we are to be good stewards, not mere users, consumers, or and God's politics pleads with us to resolve the inevitable conflicts among us without the terrible cost and consequences of war. God's politics always 
accused one set of lives and issues over another. So God's politics is not Republican or Democrat, but God's politics is about values. So Abraham Lincoln once said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. So that's where Jim Wallace gets the title of this book, On God's Side. By the way, the subtitle of this book is What Religion Forgets and Politics Hasn't Learned About Serving the Common Good. You see the difference between being saying that God is on our side and striving to be on God's side? There's like a gigantic difference between those two things. You could drive a huge truck between those two things. Totally different ideas. Um, Jim Wallace says, the first way, God on our side, leads inevitably to triumphalism, self-righteousness, bad theology, and often dangerous foreign policy. You know, like, God's on our side, we've got this. Right, that's dangerous. The second way, though, he says, asking if we are on God's side, leads to much healthier things, namely penitence and even repentance, humility, reflection, and even accountability. We need much more of all of these, Jim Wallace says, because these are often the missing values of politics. Humility, repentance, reflection, and accountability. So our prayer, as we embark on this series, through these six weeks, God's Politics, Healing the Heart of Democracy, is that we might be guided by prayerful desire to be on God's side. Not to claim somehow that God is on our side, whatever side that is, but to be on God's side, which is a posture of humility, a posture of reflection, a posture of openness, a posture of curiosity, and the posture of accountability. So Sarah gave a little um, introduction to our scripture passage from Matthew 22. And this is a, a scene where Jesus is being quizzed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day. They're trying to stump him. It's kind of a game of 20 questions. They're firing questions at him with the goal of what? Tripping him up, right? They're looking for a gotcha moment. It's a little bit like an interview with a presidential candidate, looking for a gotcha moment. So I'm just going to read a little bit earlier in the chapter uh, where it says the Pharisees met together to find a way to trap Jesus in his work. They sent that three disciples, along with the supporters of Herod, to him. Teacher, they said, we know that you are genuine and that you uh, teach God's way as it really is. We know that you are not swayed by people's opinions because you don't show favoritism. So, tell us the truth. And then they launch into some questions. The first question is, does the law allow people to pay taxes? Render to Caesar what is Caesar. The second question is this convoluted riddle about marriage. You know, a person marries and 
their spouse dies and they have children with them, yada, yada, yada. And then who's, who are they married? Who's married in heaven? They say. But then the question that I really want to um, focus on today is this one. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had left the Sadducees speechless, they met together. One of them, a legal expert, tested him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, there are lots of commandments in the There are lots of commandments in their sacred teachings. So which one is the greatest, Jesus? He replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. Did Jesus make that up? No, that's the Shema found in Deuteronomy. Jesus is quoting back at them words of scripture. This is the first and greatest commandment, he says. And the second is like it, you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two. Now, in Luke's Gospel, where we see a similar account of this story, they ask the follow-up question, which is, who is my neighbor then? If, if that's the second greatest commandment, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus launches into a famous parable, the parable of the, great, the Good Samaritan, which is to say, your neighbor is everyone, including the person you least want to think of as your neighbor. Okay? So what if we let these commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor, which is to say everyone, including the one you least want to think of as your neighbor, as yourself, what if we let those two commandments guide the way we live and move and have our being, and even the way we practice and think about politics, and even the way we vote? What if we let those commandments be our guide? Today is the 15th anniversary of the terrible tragedies of September 11, 2001. I bet if we were to go around, many of you who were alive in 2001 could say exactly where you were and what you were doing when you heard about the attack in New York City and the follow-up attack at the Pentagon. I bet you could. Raise your hand if you can think right now. Yeah. So for most of us, especially those of us who aren't able to remember other national tragedies like Pearl Harbor or like the assassination of John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King, those aren't in my memory. Um, so I think especially people in our generation, but, but all of us, will always remember September 11, 2001, the memory of that day, the terrible tragedies of that day, are etched in our memory like carved in granite. And they define who we are and how we think about the world. It's hard, to it's hard for me to believe that it's been 15 years since that day. But we remember the stories of tremendous loss, as well as stories of amazing heroism. We continue to be inspired by those stories of heroism. Many of them are sort of floating around the interwebs even now as we celebrate or observe this anniversary. 
Fifteen years later, we still remember the quick response of uncritical patriotism. Do you remember that? Just uncritical patriotism. The, the waving of flags, not really thinking very deeply because we were just so mired in the pain of it all. And the strong impulse to retaliate, that's part of that narrative with almost no self-reflection. So 15 years later, and I'm convinced that this national tragedy continues to impact our country in profound ways. Uh, the sense of fear that we have and of vulnerability and of grief continues to send shockwaves, I think, across our country. And some of what we see happening in our political environment today, I think, is, is just an extension of the emotions that we still feel from 15 years ago today. So if we're going to ask the question, are we on God's side? We're going to have to leave, we're going to have to spend some time in self-reflection and really process grief and fear. We're also going to have to examine the bad theology that leads us to think that the only solution to terrorism is a military. Theology that paints a picture of the world in very binary terms, that some people are good and some people are evil. That's the way we like to think about the world, isn't it? Very binary terms, some are good and some are evil. And we are always good, right? Because God is on our side. See the bad theology there, the danger of it. So in this book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, Parker Palmer describes five habits of the heart, he calls them, that American citizens need in order to respond to the current political situation. I just want to share these five habits with the heart, of the heart with you and encourage you to think about them in the days to come. First of all, he says, we must understand that we are all in this together. We have this illusion of individualism as if we, are, we can do this on our own. And also an illusion of national superiority. Right? That our country is the greatest, which means that all other countries are not great, or not as great. But instead, he says, we need to realize the ways in which we are actually interconnected with every other country, every other tribe, every other people, every other person around the planet. We need each other. And we see that playing out in the current global economic situation, and also in terms of ecological stress, when you think about what we are doing to this country, or to this planet, we are all in this together. We are interconnected. And so this is a habit of the heart that Parker Palmer recommends. Understanding that we are all in this together. We are interconnected, one human race, one planet. And whatever affects one of us directly affects all of us indirectly. Number two. We must develop an appreciation of the value of otherness. So saying that we are interdependent does not mean that we are all exactly the same, which is actually good. There are differences among us. And the differences are actually to be celebrated. We can come to appreciate them. This is the spiritual practice of hospitality, he says, which is welcoming the stranger. And if we practice hospitality well, welcoming the stranger can actually be a pathway to growth because the stranger has much to teach us. There's much that we can learn 
from appreciating the value of otherness and welcoming those who are different. Number three says we must cultivate the ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. You don't have to look around much to see that there are lots of contradictions in the world. And we like to narrow them down and, and make them very simplistic. It's either this or it's that, right? This is what we call black and white thinking. It's either this or it's that. But actually, there's a whole lot of gray in the middle. There's a whole lot of ambiguity, which gives us quite a lot of freedom. So he says if we can cultivate the ability to hold tension in life-giving ways, that there is actually much growth for us. We can either shut down when we encounter challenges or contradictions and dig in our heels, or we can approach them with curiosity and open-heartedness and allow tensions to actually expand our hearts and expand our minds. Number four, he says, we must generate a sense of personal voice and agency, which is to say that every human being is a beloved child of God. Every human being has a story, and everyone's story matters. Now, some of us come from places of automatic power and privilege just because of who we are. I already have voice and agency. And so part of my job as a person of privilege is to help empower other people to find their personal voice and agency and to lift up voices that are often um, diminished so that all people can find voice and agency. And lastly, number five, we must strengthen our capacity to create community. All of these previous habits of the heart are in some way dependent on this one. We need community. We need each other. It takes a village, he says, to raise Rosa Parks, as an example. Rosa Parks acted, but it took the whole village to translate that action into social change. Often, we don't have the courage to speak or act unless we are surrounded by supportive so these are habits of the heart. Loving God, loving our neighbor, healing the heart of community. So when we think about a politics worthy of the human spirit, one of the things that I think many of us find particularly distressing is the lack of civility. Have you noticed this? In our political discourse, the lack of civility. Where do you see that playing out? <laughs> Chuckle, chuckle. Where don't we see it playing out? Where do you see that playing out? Politics. Well, let's be specific. Uh, Our governor. Okay, there's one example. We don't have to say any more than that. Our governor needs to learn something about practicing civility. Where else? Conversation with family, even around the table, right? And it's so easy to go from I disagree with you to you are bad, you are wrong, right? What are you going to say? And so he has one that, this is just released this week, like three or four days ago. 
on how to disagree. And I want to share it with you as we think for a minute about civility. Awesome. 
God's politics, healing the heart of democracy. There is much that needs healing. So let's start by striving to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's start by insisting not that God is on our side, but that we are striving to be on God's side. Let's start by adopting habits of the heart. Let's start by committing ourselves to civil discourse, to seeing every person we meet, including those with whom we vigorously disagree, as a beloved child of God. Not always easy, but very important. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks that you call us to live an integrated life, to express the values that you embrace in all the arenas of our lives, through our friendships, our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and even our political uh, practices. During this election season, oh God, help us to embrace civil discourse, civility. Help us to love you and to love our neighbors in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name.